Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. This is Mrs. Jean Hill of Dallas. Could you tell us what you saw? Yes, Mary and I had come down to see the president this morning, and we tried to get a place where we could be away from everyone, and we, I guess, succeeded as the car came down the hill toward us. He was on our side of the street, and uh, the president and Mrs. Kennedy were in the back seat. They had a little dog between them looking at it, and just as the car came right in line with us, the president looked up, and just as he looked up, two shots rang out, and he grabbed his chest, and this real odd look came over his face, and he pitched forward onto her lap. And she jumped up over him at that, and screamed and said, my God, he's been shot. And there was just an instantaneous, sort of an instant's pause, and uh, in the motorcade, it momentarily halted. And three or four more shots rang out, and they sped away real quickly. And by that time, I became aware of Mary tugging on my foot, saying, get down there shooting. And I hadn't, it hadn't registered. I'd been so busy looking at the president. So you were in a very advantageous spot to see the president. To see the president, but also to get shot. How do you feel now? Uh, it's been several hours later. Uh, you've talked to the police. And you've given your story several times. Do you still believe that something like this really did happen to you? I don't think I ever could have believed it unless I had actually seen it. And, and when I saw the look come across his face, I knew it, I knew that he'd been hit. But I don't think I could have believed it if I hadn't been right there and seen, hadn't seen it. Well, you're going to have to talk to the FBI now, and uh, I understand uh, you have some home chores as well. Breakfast dishes and, and everything. I think there are an awful lot of homes here in Dallas that have breakfast dishes uh, to be done today. Well, that's right. But uh, I made a call to my friend in Oklahoma, and he told our governor of Oklahoma right away. I guess that's the first thing I wanted to do was get those people in Oklahoma told about it. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 35. You know, I sometimes wonder what it would have been like if the railroad men that you just listened to in episode 33 and 34 were to have been discovered by the news media on the day of the assassination. If the WFAA reporters would have taken them down to the studio and put them on the air, would their story have gone viral, so to speak, in today's vernacular? Would it have been too public at that point to control? Maybe. Maybe not. But we'll never know. What we do know is that there was another group of witnesses on the lawn that day in Dealey Plaza that saw the horrific act of assassination in full view with all the gory details attached. Whatever the rest of the witness pool had to try and live with from that point on, well, this group saw things that make you stand straight up in your bed at 3 a.m. in the morning, glad that you are awake now after the blast that just went off in your head. The cold sweat and the nightmares are a result of watching close up, watching the president's head be blown right off. It was more than just a murder. It was a show of power by someone or something a show of power that was done in broad daylight for all the world to see, but only for a chosen few to be the disciples of the eyewitness horror, the likes of which this country had not ever seen. Even the headshot that Abraham Lincoln succumbed to was viewed by only a few up in that booth at Ford's Theater and afterward, and it was inflicted by a small pistol one of the reasons why Lincoln lingered for the better part of a day afterward, before he finally passed. This wound that Kennedy had received was mortal from the moment it penetrated his body. It literally blasted out part of his skull and then part of his brain, sent pieces flying away from his head, flesh on the ground, and they saw it. 
maybe more accurately, they experienced it. It was more than just seeing it. There is a brand of psychology around witnessing this kind of traumatic act. The circumstance almost always brings notoriety to the witnesses, too. Whether wanted or unwanted, it's a curious mix of the sensational and the macabre. For some, it became a character test, too. A celebrity element attached to being one of these witnesses is a moniker that some secretly crave. While they might not have auditioned for the role, they ended up being enthusiastic actors in the play, after the fact. We have at least one such witness in this group today, Gene Hill. Gene began, I think, as a credible witness. But over the years, the things she said became more and more controversial. Well, honestly, some of these controversial statements were right from the get-go. Like the statement she made on the day of the assassination that there was a dog in the president's car situated in between the president and his wife. Strike one related to her eyewitness testimony. She corrected that pretty quickly. But I'm just saying, right from the get-go, there were some problems. That is unfortunate, I think, in some ways, because she may have seen something quite significant related to the mystery of it all. But we'll get to that in a moment. Over the next several episodes, we're going to listen to a handful of witnesses, witnesses that were right there, right there along Elm, and right next to the limousine when the shots were fired. These folks were the ones closest to the president's car at the time of the shots. Some of them were so close they could almost touch it, and a few others that were not quite as close but saw something relevant. Thanks to WFAA and other news outlets, these individuals became the witness celebrities of the assassination, the ones that were most interviewed and mostly because they received that initial notoriety for good reason at the moment of the act. Some of these witnesses were on the south side, looking north toward the grassy knoll, and some of them on the north side, looking south with their back to the knoll, but with their ears in good position to hear a shot coming over their head or over one of their shoulders. Being so close, you might think that they could have determined visually from the impact to the president's head just where the shots had come from. But in reality, the complexity of that determination was beyond the capability of the human eye for most witnesses at that moment. But maybe not all of them. Certainly some of them that you will hear from clearly saw brain matter splattered about, and a few witnessed the direction that this brain matter traveled after it was ejected from the president's head. I know. It's truly gory. But still, ultimately, it would have to be left to the autopsy and the forensic experts after the fact to figure out a definitive answer to where those shots had really come from. And that is a completely different and tragic set of episodes to come. But still, they would be left to determine one principal thing. Did any of those shots enter from the front and exit from the rear? Entering from the front meant a grassy knoll shooter and a conspiracy. History is an interesting animal. For you to have confidently heard a shot from the grassy knoll, likely you would have had to have been at one of a precious few vantage points. Those witnesses that were close up to the president's limousine at the time of the headshot were in one of those precious few vantage points. And many of them thought they had heard shots coming from the grassy knoll. Even the most conservative counts put at least 35 or so total witnesses in that category of thinking that shots came from the knoll. And in some counts, it was upwards of 100. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, as it usually is. And if you were one of these celebrity witnesses, well, these folks came under a lot of pressure immense pressure, to accept the official narrative. On the other hand, they knew what they heard and saw. And a precious few of them, like Bill Newman, heard shots coming right over their heads toward the president. 
Maybe that's why he was one of the closest witnesses to the actual assassination, and he was never called by the Warren Commission to testify. Some other folks weren't fully convinced of that, and it didn't take much persuasion for that subset of witnesses to get in line with the official narrative, since they weren't sure to begin with. It wasn't too hard to just accept the conclusions of the authorities. But as I have also said to all of you, listening to a witness as quickly as possible after the crime always produces a more unadulterated version of what they saw and what they experienced at that moment, a version that lacks the serious bias that begins to creep into these types of circumstances almost immediately and almost inevitably. So today, we are going to listen to Gene Hill and Mary Mormon. And over the next several episodes, we'll also hear from Bill and Gail Newman, Charles Brem, the Willis family members, and Emmett Hudson. All of these witnesses had front row seats, so to speak. They didn't have the panorama available to them that the railroad men did, but their vantage point was closer up, and the witnesses on the south side of Elm, the ones looking north, had a clear view of the grassy knoll at the time of the assassination. The lower level of the plaza would have afforded a clear view of that fence under the trees, a better direct view than the railroad men had. A few of these folks on the south side of Elm even took famous pictures, and we will address one of those pictures taken by Mary Mormon in today's episode. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 35. When I was growing up, we had some very fun and very dear friends of the family, friends of my mom and dad's. Their names were Dot and Dina. They have passed now, all in the last two or three years, but they both remained on this good earth up into their 90s. Dina became a great-great-grandmother shortly before she died, and I said two greats there, not just one. Their personal story and how it became interwoven with my family is too big of a wander for today's episode, but suffice it to say that these two ladies remind me a little bit of Jean Hill and Mary Mormon, the two ladies we are about to talk about. Dot and Dina ended up both divorcing their first husbands, and whatever pain that may have caused them, they both filled the vacuum in a number of different ways over the years, including long-distance cross-country travel trips that they both took together. Dot, which is short for Dorothy, was from Oklahoma. My parents met her and the family in Fort Lauderdale. I believe she was part Cherokee, which explains the Oklahoma zip code in her life. And she would often go back there with Dina as part of their cross-country treks. These were two courageous women who were not afraid to go it alone when it came to travel and other things too. They were wonderful people for sure, and I love them both. In my own time, my years between the age of about 10 and 15, Dot was like a second mother to me, and her son Tommy was a brother of a different mother. So I tell the story of Jean Hill and Mary Mormon with a bit of a chuckle, not because anything they did or said is exactly like what Dot and Dina did or said. I can't put my finger on it, really. And obviously, I never knew Jean Hill or Mary Mormon. But I think of their story rather fondly, and I think Dot and Dina have something to do with that, why I feel that way, even though I am totally puzzled by the path that Jean Hill took over the years. Apparently, she saw things, more things that day than Mary did, even though they were standing right next to one another at the moment of the assassination. Had Jean spoken a little more deliberately and not engaged in some of the more bizarre verbal exchanges and circumstances that subsequently took place, well, then some of her claims might have been taken more seriously. And what she said and what she saw 
Well, it might have been given more credibility, too. These were two good-looking ladies, and in the case of Jean Hill, she was going through a divorce. She was a mother of two children with kids whose ages were around 12 and 10 at the time of the assassination, and she was certainly a lady who had some giddy-up in her hitch. A lot of energy, that is. You could tell that. She was graduated from Oklahoma Baptist University at Shawnee while she and her husband were raising these two young children, and she taught school in Oklahoma before she and her husband moved to Dallas. And then for the last year and a half or so before the assassination, she had been a substitute teacher in the local school system there in Dallas. Not only were the two ladies there in the plaza that day to see the president and his missus, but I understand they also had their eyes on one of the motorcycle policemen in the parade, a potential dating prospect for one of them. Mary Mormon was the other half of this dynamic duo. She was there with her Polaroid camera, an older Polaroid camera as she would describe it. She would take two pictures that day in the plaza, just around the time the motorcade appeared. Two Polaroid pictures, one of which would become an iconic photo of the assassination. Like Philip Willis, she and Jean would be stationed on the south side of Elm Street, about halfway down toward the underpass, with the president's limousine proceeding just slightly past her at the time the picture was taken, as the motorcade traveled down Elm. Willis, with his 35-millimeter camera, would snap a slide picture right at the moment that the president was hit and wounded with the first shot that hit him. Like the other end of a bookend, Mary Mormon would end up taking the only still picture from that same angle that was exposed right at the moment that the president was hit by the final shot to the head. It's a picture of the president slumping to the left with a view of the grassy knoll in the background. Sadly, it was a Polaroid, so not an incredibly clear and detailed picture, really grainy and fuzzy at best. Had that picture been taken with Willis's 35-millimeter camera at that very moment, it might have revealed much more, and possibly more definitive photographic evidence of whether a gunman was behind the picket fence. These two young ladies were right there. They were as close as just about anybody to the action when the shots occurred and they were immediately accosted by the media. And in doing my own research and watching all of the clips and reading all the testimony, well, I can't say that Jean Hill didn't like the spotlight. She clearly did. I think over the years, for her, that turned out to be both a boon and a bane. She loved the attention, but the scrutiny was difficult. On the day of the assassination, her voice, and in some cases video of her own eyewitness at the scene, was carried to faraway places across the country, indeed across the globe. Coverage provided by local TV and radio stations of the breaking news of the attack and the assassination of President Kennedy, well, every farm boy in the country got a chance to hear Jean as she described the traumatic and chaotic scene that engulfed those frightful moments. Over time, it seems that such notoriety adulterated, to some extent, her story, and of course, the credibility that was attached to it. One thing is for sure, by the time she testified before the Warren Commission, she was a known commodity to the media. And I don't think it was anything but by design that the Warren Commission sent in Arlen Specter to interview her. Wesley Liebler had interviewed a great deal of the other first-hand witnesses that saw things in Dealey Plaza, but Jean had made statements about a man running away from the scene up on the knoll, and it was important for the commission to address her testimony in a way that gave them the flexibility they needed when they ultimately began to write the report. The translation of all of that is that they were happy to see Spectre highlights some of the things she would say, and even at times makes some of them sound downright foolish. It was just one more subtle and adept way to discredit things that a witness might say and thereby support the official narrative. In the end, my view is that Spectre was hostile to her in the interview. 
He wasn't looking for an objective discussion to be had with her. He was skeptical of Jean Hill's testimony and critical of her as she had been talking to Mark Lane and other news outlets. And he was as concerned about that and what might have been said to them and what they might have said to her, just as concerned about that as he was about listening to the exact facts that this witness had to offer about what happened that day, or to help this witness tease out the articulation of those facts in the best, most detailed way to help the investigation and to find the real truth. Oh no, it was definitely not that. Rather, it was a prosecutor subtly dismantling a defense witness. You don't have to be a rocket scientist reading the interrogation testimony to figure that out. So let's listen to important parts of Jean's testimony as she gave it to the Warren Commission and the back and forth that occurred between she and Arlen Specter. Jean Hill gave her testimony on March 24, 1964. On the day of the assassination, she had come to Dealey Plaza with her friend, Mary Mormon, and they were both standing directly across from the Texas School Book Depository building and across from the grassy slope that makes up the triangle reaching toward the underpass. They were on the south side of Elm Street, and they had been in the plaza for about half an hour before the motorcade arrived. While waiting there, they had been walking up and down and back and forth. Mary had a camera, a Polaroid camera, and they had been taking pictures all morning. Mary, that is. They wanted to get a good shot of the president, and because they had a Polaroid camera, they both knew they would only have one chance to get one good picture. You have to understand how those cameras work to know that. Mary had just taken a picture, and then both of them realized that the president's motorcade was about ready to turn the corner. So Jean grabbed and yanked the existing Polaroid film out of the camera and placed it into her pocket so that the camera itself was now ready to take the next picture. Hopefully a good picture of the president as he began to draw even with them. As the president's limousine came near, Mary and Jean were standing close to the curb on Elm Street, and Jean jumped to the edge of the street and yelled to the president, Hey, we want to take your picture. Jean would recount that she felt like the president was looking down and that he and Mrs. Kennedy had their heads turned toward the middle of the car, perhaps looking down at something in the seat, which later Jean realized turned out to be a bouquet of roses. Jean was afraid that the president was going to look the other way because there was a lot of people across the street as far as she knew at the moment, and there were only a few people down there on that side of the street in that area where she was at. As Jean yelled hey to the president, Kennedy began to bring his head up to look at Jean, and just as he did, a shot rang out. She remembers Mary taking the picture, and then Mary fell to the ground. According to Jean, there would be more shots after that. It was already becoming clear by that time that the president had likely been hit by what was the final shot in the sequence. So Spectre began to press her on this point, asking how many shots were there altogether. Jean would answer back, I have always said there were some four to six shots. There were three shots, one right after the other, and then a distinct pause or just a moment's pause, and then I heard more. And describing the first three shots, she would say they were rapid. They were rapidly fired, but she could not give an estimate on the time span in total or between the shots. And she would reiterate again that she thought there were at least four or five shots, and perhaps six, but she knew there was more than three. Mary fell on the ground first after the shots began, and she grabbed Jean's slacks and said, Get down! They are shooting! And she knew they were too, but she too was stunned to move. So she just stood there and gawked as the gunfire proceeded. She declared that the first three shots were fired as if one person was firing them, all three of them. To her, they were fired just like somebody would reload and fire again. 
She already knew that the supposed gunman had used a bolt-action rifle, and so she declared that she thought those first three shots could have come from a bolt-action rifle. It was a different story when it came to the next set of shots, the fourth shot, and possibly number five and or number six. And she thought they were different. She thought the sequence was different. She thought they were quicker and more automatic. She wouldn't say positively, but she thought that it was, again, more like four to six shots. She knew there were at least four, and she could almost swear that she had heard five or six. Jean was never at a loss for words, and she would say that what she was thinking was already colored, perhaps by what she had heard from the statements that Governor Conley and his wife had made about the shots. It was probably the first indication that she was a witness that could be persuaded in her views around what happened, persuaded by something that someone else had said after the fact. Spectre would press her and grill her on various questions regarding the number and timing of the shots. Obviously, clearly important to the single bullet theory that he himself was giving birth to, a theory that would preserve the lone gunman narrative. He would also quiz her about exactly where each of the car's inhabitants were situated. It probably shouldn't have been a particularly difficult test, but she basically flunked it. And by the likes of the way he grilled her on it, I think he was happy to begin showing that this witness was less than reliable on some details. I'm not an attorney, although I do sometimes try to play one on TV. But I do get the distinct impression that the Warren Commission attorneys decided on balance whether they wanted to enhance or detract from the credibility of a given witness based on the overall impact they anticipated regarding that particular witness's testimony. And that determined fundamentally how they handled each witness. Basically, they decided whether it was a witness for the prosecution of Oswald as a lone gunman in the case or a witness for the defense of Oswald, and thus for a conspiracy. Jean would recount that she said to friends at the police station that as the president was hit in the head, she would notice that his hair was standing up. It just rippled up at the time of the third shot. She would again reiterate that after the third shot, there was a pause, and then the other shots came. Mary had grabbed her, and Mary was yelling, Jean had seen a lot of TV and a lot of movies, and she thought those additional gunshots, the ones that came after the third shot, were really the Secret Service agents shooting back at whoever might have been shooting at the president. To her, and maybe it was because of all the TV and movies she had seen, if somebody shoots at you as the president, you always shoot back. She didn't know really, but that was certainly the thought in her mind at the time and she clearly articulated it for the whole world to hear. Like so many other witnesses, she would recall that the motorcade came to a halt at the time the shots rang out. It was almost as if the driver was stunned himself. As Mary continued to yell at Jean to get down on the ground, Jean looked up, and she could see everyone was just stunned, too. There was a sort of immobility all around her, and she just stood there looking around, even though there wasn't a pause. To her, it seemed like an eternity, but she was sure that it was, in reality, just a slight pause for just a moment before the world started moving again. She herself was so stunned, she could not remember Mrs. Kennedy climbing up on the back of the car, but later she saw pictures of it. Within an instant, Mrs. Hill saw a man on the north side of Elm Street at the top of the knoll, and he was running or getting away or walking away or something, she would say. She finally settled on the idea that he was running. He was right up there by the school book depository, not at the corner where they say the shots came from, but at the other end of the depository, closer to the top of the slope, just in front of the depository building but closer to the west end, slightly east of the westernmost point of the building. As they did with so many witnesses, 
Spectre would engage in drawing a diagram as to where this man was and where Jean and Mary were situated on that day. Jean, as the fog of the moment began to break, instinctively began to run across the street and proceeded to chase this man that she had determined was leaving the scene. Jean could see him headed toward the tracks. He had on an overcoat and a hat, and he caught Jean's attention. Because he was the only person moving up there, all the other people were grief-stricken and standing there. She wasn't sure what she would have done had she gone up there and been able to catch him. She wasn't even sure why she had that instinct to run. And she admitted that she wasn't even sure that there was anything about this man that was even connected with the assassination. But it was her instinct and her inclination at the time to follow and chase this man. At that moment, her instinct was that this was the man that did it. She didn't see any weapon in his hand. She never saw a weapon in anyone's hand, and she didn't really even get a good look at the man. She never really saw him from the front, but only at an angle, and he was turning and going west toward the railroad tracks. She had some view of the front part of his body, but not much. She didn't recall seeing either of his hands, and for some reason, Spectre decided to zero in on why she couldn't remember seeing his hands. Again, just a tactic by a prosecutor. Jean would then dash across the street, and she came close to colliding with one of the first motorcycles that was trying to ride up the knoll. The motorcycle nearly hit her, and Jean thinks the policeman never even saw her. She looked at him for a split moment and dodged the cycle because she thought his wheel was going to hit her, and she then ran across and started up the hill, trying to catch that man. And on her way up, she looked down and saw something on the ground, some red stuff, and she thought, oh, they got him. That is, the man that was running away. Thinking he's bleeding, and then in a moment of self-proclaimed embarrassment during her testimony, she would recount that it turned out to not be blood, of course, but it was just Kool-Aid or something of a red drink on the ground. For the listener, that may have actually turned out to be spilled soda that occurred when two other witnesses in shock dropped their glass pop bottles near the top of the knoll as they scrambled themselves to find cover or otherwise exit. The story that we will tell later about that is, I think, significant. Jean would try to describe the man that was running away, basically indicating that he wasn't very tall, but that she couldn't estimate his height. And then she would say something quite odd. Well, at least I think so. And maybe it has to do with the fact that this rumor may have already been circulating in the Dallas area at the time. Apologizing in advance for the analogous reference she was about to make, she stated that the man was running away, well, he had a general build about the same as Jack Ruby. Ruby by this time was already pretty famous as Oswald's killer. She quickly qualified her statement, saying that she had talked with the FBI about this and she realized that Ruby's whereabouts had been covered at all times. And one more example of how witnesses were, in some cases, rather easily persuaded after the fact to change their mind about where the shots came from, she would say this, At the time, I didn't realize that the shots were coming from the building. I frankly thought they were coming from the knoll. She would make a mark on the drawings used as a commission exhibit that she and Arlen Specter were working on together that day. And Jean would draw a big circle on the exhibit as to where she thought the shots were coming from. Basically, it was up on the hill, up behind the grassy knoll. Probably, much to Arlen Specter's dismay, I am sure, she would continue to reiterate that she looked up and saw that man and all the rest of the people were stunned and not moving in that area, and yet he was getting out of there. It was a natural instinct for her to think that this man had probably done it, and so she went to catch him for some reason. She was honest when they discussed the first shot and where it came from, saying that evidently 
She didn't have a conscious recollection of it, given that she knew now that it had come from the Texas School Book Depository. She would candidly offer that, initially, she thought all of the shots came from the knoll, all three of the original shots, until she heard otherwise. Specter would press her on the topic and, again, definitely use prosecutor-like tactics, leading the witness and asking her whether she thought the Secret Service fired the shots from the knoll, inferring back to her earlier testimony, a somewhat foolish prospect. Jean picked up on it and told Specter that, as she had previously stated, she didn't know who fired the shots. She would continue her story, and once up to the top of the knoll, she would go and begin running toward the railroad tracks, still looking for that man. At that point, others were joining along, and she could hear lots of people yelling, Did he get away? Did he get away? And asking which way this man may have gone. Everyone was screaming and moving around. And for the listener, it's interesting at this point that she mentions quite a few people who, based on this statement, also saw this man, similar to what Jean Hill witnessed. Yet Specter never pressed the topic to try and understand who else might be out there that could give more information on the matter. And the real possibility that they could have validated the existence of this man running and possibly a better description with more details. That opportunity was probably lost forever. Jean seemed reluctant to say a lot more, citing the fact that it had only been about four months since the assassination and she had already been made fun of as a witness. She was open about it and recounted the story that she told about seeing a dog in the presidential limousine, remembering that she had given that statement out on a radio or a TV interview. And her nervous explanation of it during her Warren Commission testimony compelled her to ramble on about the Gabors and Liz Taylor traveling with dogs and, and how she and Mary discussed that they couldn't see the Kennedys doing the same thing. She would also comment on the fact that she had caught a little bit of ribbing for speaking with a thick Oklahoma twang. This part of the celebrity was already wearing on her, and apparently some of the ribbing just came directly from her husband, the one that she was in the middle of divorcing. She would continue with her description of the man. Again, he was about the same height as Jack Ruby, and certainly wasn't any more in weight than Jack Ruby, and he might have even been smaller than Jack Ruby, as a matter of fact. And yes, he was wearing a hat and an overcoat, a hat that was brown, or at least gave her the impression that it was brown. He was probably middle-aged and, say, possibly 40 years old. Specter would press her and ask her directly, Do you think it was Jack Ruby? Under oath, she would say, I don't know. Back to her story and the mayhem of the event. Eventually, up in that parking lot, she would turn around and then begin working her way back, back down the knoll and then back across to the south side of Elm Street, trying to find Mary Mormon. There, she would encounter a man gripping Mary's arm as if he was in the process of taking her somewhere and with Mary crying. This man was a reporter, Featherstone, from KLRD Radio and TV, and he was working Mary, trying to secure the camera and the pictures, and trying to force Mary to come with him. Featherstone's actions weren't agreeable to Jean, and she started to immediately shake his hand loose and grab the camera back, and at about that time, she began to settle back into the consciousness of the moment. Reality began to seep into things, and she began to develop a sense of urgency, and she knew she wanted to get out of there, out of Dealey Plaza. That's all she could think of at that moment, as the full impact of what was happening had not sunk in yet, but it was starting to. The authorities were already beginning to throw up a police net around the depository building. Eventually, Featherstone would persuade them to run up to what they thought was the courthouse, where they were then placed in a little room. 
a room that turned out to be a makeshift press room and a place where it seemed like they couldn't leave from. From Jean's perspective, they were almost being held captive. Featherstone kept standing in front of the door and would let cameramen or others in to interview the two ladies. That is, a group of newspaper reporters and radio and TV people. And one of them was a man named John Coker, who is sort of a freelance writer, as Jean understood it. She wasn't sure who he was exactly, but perhaps he was with Life or Post Magazine. He was shooting pictures, and later, almost two weeks later, he would come out to Jean's house with a group of others to take a taped interview. While they were there at the courthouse, Jean and Mary talked to Secret Service men, too. Jean never did see credentials, but she gave a story to them, and they didn't write anything down. She would also make a signed statement to the sheriff that day. She would admit that the pack of reporters got most of the Polaroid pictures that they took that day. In her words, they got them all from us. She would recount that she had talked to the FBI on several occasions before the Warren Commission testimony, probably two or three times at least over the telephone and once in person. Spector's attention returned to the discussions that the reporters had with her about two weeks after the assassination when they came to her house for a TV interview and began asking a lot of hypothetical questions about the loans to the president obviously trying to prove whether or not the shots had come exclusively from the school book depository or whether there was another location from whence they came. She would readily admit that there was speculation or some reasonable doubt that Oswald did not do all the shooting and that all the shots did not come from that window. And after all the back and forth with Spectre about this, she would reiterate that very simply, on the day of the assassination, her initial impression was that all the shots had come from the knoll. Specter asked a fair question. However, do you think that your initial impression that all the shots came from the knoll was a function of the fact that you saw that man running away? Hill answered the question objectively, saying, it could have been. It very well could have been. Hill admitted that the television interview and what the men had said to her left her very doubtful and confused. She would also recount that on the day of the assassination, in the press room, at some point, they offered Mary, she thought, $10,000 or something like that for the picture, but that the life or post representative advised her not to sell the picture until they had spoken to a lawyer or others. Unfortunately, these young women had let Featherstone look at it. The press was clamoring to get their hands on that photo, and they would say things like, would you let us look at it to see if it could be reproduced? And the ladies answered back yes, and in all the confusion and excitement before you know it, they had lost track of where the picture was. And now there was a lot of money involved, and Mary was getting scared. Well, they found the picture, and Mary eventually sold the rights to publishing it, but she retained ownership of the original picture itself, as Jean would assert. And Jean would allege, during her testimony, that Featherstone himself had basically stolen the picture and allowed AP and UPI to pick it up on the wire. Jean thought that Mary had ultimately sold her rights for a sum of $600. Obviously, not knowing how integral that picture would become in the conspiracy investigation. Jean would continue to tell what turned out to be a pretty chilling story of what was happening to them in the press room. At one point, as they kept asking to leave and asking for their picture back and where it was, finally, Jean, in frustration, bolted out of the room and immediately encountered what she believed to be a Secret Service man who immediately asked her whether she was wearing a red raincoat that day. Apparently, the timing was good as they had the red and blue raincoats that the two ladies were wearing that day and were graciously bringing them down to the ladies as the authorities had been looking for the two of them. It was now the authorities trying to find them in order to make statements. And once the ladies had been located, 
there in the makeshift press room. Well then, Jean and Mary were then taken over to the police station. And just about that time, Sheriff Decker came out and Jean would then explain to the sheriff why the authorities had not been able to find the ladies. And she would tell them it was because the reporters had them holed up in the press room. To top it off, in all the confusion that was going on that day, some of the authorities thought that Mary may have actually been hit by gunfire, which is one more reason why they were anxious to find her and to find them both and to find their camera as well. In the aftermath, Jean would reflect on the fact that it was just their own ignorance that would allow them to be held captive by a man with no authority, no authority at all, to hold them in that room. Talking with the Secret Service man that day, they would continue to reiterate to Jean that there was only three shots, and she would continue to reiterate to them that she knew there was more. She would clearly tell the Secret Service agent on that day that she heard from four to six shots anyway. Then she would testify next to something that was quite interesting. She would indicate that the Secret Service man to which she was speaking would say this, Mrs. Hill, we were standing at the window and we heard more shots also, but we have three wounds and we have three bullets, so three shots is all that we are willing to say right now. Let's stop and pause right there because that's a pretty powerful assertion that the Secret Service man would make that kind of a statement. A narrative right there, right at that point of the crime, already being formed within hours of the assassination, and by the Secret Service of all groups. Spectre pressed her on it, and again, she was clear and objective, and she said, that's all he said to me. He didn't say, you have to say three shots. He didn't tell me what to say. He didn't try to intimidate me or coerce me. That's all he said. What Hill recalls next, though, is, I think, even more interesting. Spectre was very interested in what Mark Lane had asked Jean and what they had talked about. And one thing in particular was that Lane had asked her, have you ever, at any time, been told not to say something? And Hill would recount that there was one thing. She would say, the only thing that I was told not to say was not to mention the man running. And of course, it was an FBI or a Secret Service man that told me that, told me not to. They came in to talk with me just right after I was taken in there into the press room and told me that. Well, in fact, I told him it was Featherstone that also told me that. He said, you know, you were wrong about seeing a man running. He said, you didn't. So for the listener, here we have a circumstance where both the FBI and or the Secret Service, as well as a member of the media, was telling Jean not to mention the man she saw running away from the scene. Just one more example of everywhere you were looking, the authorities were burying their head in the sand when it came to clues that clearly were leading to something other than a lone gunman, and some members of the press were even in on this suppression. And this is one of the more blatant examples. Now let's turn briefly to Mary Mormon. Hearing the story of Jean Hill is, for the most part, hearing the story of Mary Mormon on that day, with one very important and notable exception. Mary didn't see much, and she didn't have an opinion on where the shots came from. She was the quiet one, she wasn't going to get involved beyond that, and really, she didn't have much more to offer as evidence. She was mindful almost from the start of the shots and how dangerous the situation was, and she took action to get down in a hurry. It was a stark contrast to Jean Hill, who sat and stared at the slow-motion tragedy that was developing. Everybody sees something differently. Jean kept her eyes on the man that was running. Mary went to the ground with a presence of mind to stay focused on staying safe. It was a completely different vantage point, even though they were standing side by side. Mrs. Mormon's FBI report reads very simply. Among other things, it states that the two photos she took were given by her 
to Secret Service agents John Joe Howlett and Bill Patterson shortly before 4 p.m. on November 22, 1963. Mrs. Mormon advised that she saw no one in the area that appeared to have possibly been the assassin and could furnish no additional information. Uh, this is Edwin Newman, NBC News in New York. We have an interview with an eyewitness to the shooting of President Kennedy in Dallas. I must repeat now, the president is still alive, but is described as being in very critical condition in the hospital in Dallas. He has been given blood transfusions. Two Roman Catholic priests have been summoned to the emergency room in the hospital where the president is lying. Now... We're going to let you hear an interview with an eyewitness to the shooting that took place in Dallas a short time ago. What is your name, ma'am? Jane Hill. Uh, from Dallas? That's right. And uh, did you see the shooting, miss? Yes, sir. Can you describe what happened? Yes, sir. Can you do that now? Uh, they were driving along, uh, and we were the only people in this area on our side, and the shots came from directly across the street from us. And just as the president's car became directly even with us, the, we took one look at him, and he was sitting there. He and Jackie were looking at a dog that was in the middle of a seat. And about that time, two shots rang out just as he looked up. This is the president looked up. And these two shots rang out, and he grabbed his chest. And it looked like he was in pain, and he fell over in the seat. And Jackie fell over on him and said, my God, he's been shot. Thank you for listening to episode 35 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.